king is here today. He's here with us. He's not just here at earth. He's in Williston. Praise the Lord. We talked last week about holy matrimony. This is a little two-part series. Today I want to talk to you about a marriage made in heaven. Got your Bibles is in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Weddings are a beautiful thing in our culture and our society. Joining two lives together is one, and God puts them together like that. We've got a lot of customs that's come about over the years uh, surrounding weddings, surrounding marriage, but I found out this week other nations have even stranger customs than we have when it comes to a wedding. Let me just give you a few. Weddings are very emotional many times, but there are certain parts of China uh, a month before their wedding, the Tuji the brides, I don't know how to pronounce that, cry for one hour a day. <laughs> I could hear Wayne Hoffman said, and the man cried for one hour from after the wedding. Uh, in Malaysia and in Indonesia, the Tadong people, this is, I don't understand, do not let the couple go to the bathroom for three days after the wedding. They believe it brings fertility, happiness, longevity, and prosperity. It brings something, but I don't know if it's that. Uh, to not do that will bring bad luck, infidelity, and early death. In Kenya, the Maasai people, the father of the bride spits on the wedding, ground, wedding gown of the bride. <laughs> uh, it's a sign of respect, and it's supposed to hopefully not jinx the couple, it says. In South Korea, the grooms cannot leave their with their bride until their feet have been beaten. They bind his ankles, take off his shoes, and beat the bottom of his feet with a stick or a dried fish. It's supposed to test the groom's strength and character. In Venezuela, it's custom for the bride and groom to sneak off from the wedding reception without saying goodbye to the guests. I could keep that, reception, that, uh, that custom there probably. In America, the bride, of course, tosses her bouquet, and whoever catches it is supposed to be in line, the custom says, next in line to be married. In Peru, there are ribbons that hang outside the wedding cake. If you're single and you get a slice that has a ring attached to that ribbon, you're going to be next in line. In Cuba, everyone that dances with the bride at the reception is required to pin money on her, on her dress. This goes to help defray the cost of the wedding and honeymoon. Strange customs. There's many more, but I'll stop there. In the Philippines, though, here's some strange things. Antonio Puno married Aditha Reyes as she laid in a coffin in the church. 
They were engaged to be married June the 28th, 1970, four days before the service. She got ill. She went down quickly, and she was dying. She asked her husband when she knew she was going to die. She asked him, if I die, will the wedding still be held? He said, yes. They had wedding attendants, ring bearers, and everything. He stood by the altar, by the coffin. They had the wedding ceremony, and then after that, they started the funeral service. Here's a strange one. I'm glad I'm not strange. Uh, (laughs) James and Mary Grady, between 1964 and 1969, married each other over and over again 27 times. I don't know. In 25 different states. Ramon Garcia Diaz went to the Caribbean in 1975 and ended up marrying a 16-year-old girl. He was 115 years old. (laughs) He said he'd never been married before. He didn't have the time. He'd been an adventurer. He's fixing to be on an adventure, isn't he? Uh, And this last one shows you that love conquers all. As Doc Nager, age 35, and Francis Peretz, age 28, had been married, but they got a divorce. They got a divorce because he felt like she was cheating on him, and he shot her 13 times. She went to visit him in the prison. They got married again. He went back to his cell. She went home. Uh, The truth is stranger than fiction sometimes, I guess. But when you're talking about the subject we're going to talk about today, we're talking about a very unusual wedding that's still in the future. It's a marriage between Christ, the groom, and his bride, the church. You've got one more wedding to go to, not just to attend, but to be in. And that's the marriage with the lamb and, of course, the marriage supper of the lamb following that. So let's look at this a little bit, a little bit closer. Understanding this wedding and the joy of a wedding. All the world loves a lover, and when a news hits that a wedding's going to approach It creates a lot of excitement. It builds up to a big thing. It's the happiest day. A wedding is supposed to be the happiest day of a woman's life. I don't know if that's still the case, but they said there's other things now have uh, taken the place of that. The wedding is the happiest day uh, after she gives birth to her first child, a promotion on the job, having her first grandchild, a retirement. These are considered the happiest days in a woman's life also. But the wedding between the Son of God and the bride that the Father is picked out for His Son, which is the church, is one that's still to come. We can't grasp what this is all about unless we understand a Jewish wedding and the customs. This is a Jewish book written by Jewish people uh, pointing us to a Jewish Savior and so forth. To understand this book, you need to understand the culture or the marriage, you need to understand this book and the culture. And so you've got to kind of study the culture of those days. Look at it this way. If I was to go into the deep, dark jungles of the Amazon and get some native that has never seen civilization or anything and transport them and put them in New York City, they would be not only frightened, but they wouldn't have any concept of what to do. It's completely out of their culture and element. If you were to take us today in the 21st century and put us back... Uh, in Bible days, we would be a little bit out of our culture because all we can do is relate to what goes on in our day. So you've got to go backwards a little bit and un- to understand the marriage of the Lamb. Let's talk about customs of weddings for just a moment, customs we have here 
in our country, in our culture. There are two types of weddings. There's religious weddings performed by a licensed minister, priest, or rabbi. There's civil weddings in our country performed by a judge, a civic uh, official, a notary, someone like that. The two requirements for getting married, you have to have a blood test and you've got to have a license. Marriage is regulated not by the federal government in our country, but by the state government. That's why uh, there's different rules and regulations for every state because it's state-run. It's not by the federal government. Even things like gay marriage, even though it's been passed, it's been pushed for like 30 or 40 years uh, as a law, so to speak, there's still 13 states that do not uh, validate that. Anyway, here's what I'm, what I'm trying to get across to you. In some states, the legal age to marry is 18 years of age for a boy and 16, or 16 for a girl. In some states, the legal age for being married is 15 for a boy and 14 for a girl. So some states, if you're, if you're that young, you've got to find a state that'll, that will allow that. About almost half the states in this country, it's legal to marry your first cousin. Uh, we got a lot of different customs in our, in our culture. I don't understand the meaning behind all of it, but I'll give you what I studied and read about it. We throw rice on the couple as they're leaving uh, the church or whatever. It's supposed to wish the couple's great prosperity and many children. We put a ring on the third finger of the left hand. The old custom was, I don't know if it's legitimate or not, there was a vein or a nerve that ran from the third finger of the left hand to the heart. And that's what it's supposed to symbolize. We call it tying the knot. That came from Rome. The brides would have a girdle on that had many different knots in the back that you had to tie it real tight. And it had something to do with that. Uh, the white wedding gown, something that came about in the 1840s. Queen Victoria is the first one that wore a white wedding gown. It used to be a woman just wore a regular dress, something nice. But this white wedding gown came about from Queen Victoria. She wore it, and then uh, it's been passed down ever since. Uh, tying cans onto the back of the car kind of come from the Middle Ages. They used to, when a couple was married, they would bang pots and pans together to ward off evil spirits off the couple uh, so they'd have a good wedding, a uh, good marriage. Carrying your bride over the threshold. If the bride stumbled going over the threshold, it meant you're going to have a bumpy and a difficult marriage. So the groom would carry her over the threshold to make sure everything went right. A lot of these customs came from superstitions and things like that and other cultures that we've adopted over the years. And we don't think anything of it. We don't know why we do it, but we just do it. Uh, we Nowadays in our country, in our culture, a lot of people get married from computer dating. They they go to computer websites and they can fill in information about themselves and they'll get a match for them and they, sometimes they get married off of that. There was a, I read one this week of a couple that applied and filled out the information on the computer dating site and uh, they talked a little bit on the phone and they were going to meet up for the first time. And the boy was kind of bald-headed and uh, when he met the girl the first time, uh, they greeted each other, had a little small talk. She said, I don't think you were exactly honest on the computer profile. You said that you had thick, dark, wavy hair. He said, I do, but it's on my back. So anyway, there's a lot of, uh, 
we do things today in our culture that's a little bit weird and different. But anyway, let's go back to the Jewish culture and let's see if we can uh, understand what the marriage to the Lamb is going to be about. First stage of the Jewish wedding ceremony is the betrothal stage. It's kind of a, our concept of finding somebody and dating them and then getting engaged and getting married, that was not their concept in the Bible for marriage. Uh, a boy didn't get up on his camel and ride over to his girlfriend's house and pick her up and say, let's go down to the Sea of Galilee and watch the sunset, that kind of stuff. They didn't date each other and so forth. A lot of times marriages were arranged, or arranged by contract by the parents uh, the boy or the girl had a little bit of say in it. Didn't have a lot always, but they did have a say in it. Uh, but others, you know, we would call it an engagement. Betrothed to somebody is when you make a contract that you're going to get married. Now, that's, we call it engaged until you actually get married. You're just engaged. But when you did this right here, it was a legal contract, and uh, you could only way you could get out of it was by divorce. Even though you hadn't moved in with the, your spouse, you hadn't consummated the marriage or anything like that. You were just engaged, betrothed to them, but it was a legal, uh, it was called the ketubah. It was a legal binding contract. The, the bride's family got part of the contract, the groom's family, and they, they uh, recorded one in, in the city. Uh, they were legally married, and uh, you could only get it if, a divorce if the person was unfaithful to you. That's why Joseph wanted to, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, he said, well, let's go ahead. Even though they hadn't been together, he said, we're going ahead and get a divorce. He decided he was going to divorce her privately. He could have done it openly and put her to shame, but he was going to do it privately. He loved her that much and wanted to protect her a little bit. Of course, the Lord spoke in and uh, stepped in. You remember in the Old Testament, Jacob was in love with Rachel. Another thing they would do in those days, you had to pay a, the, the groom and his father had to pay a dowry to the bride's father, their, them. Why? Because the bride's father and his family, they were losing a daughter. And the groom's family was gaining a daughter-in-law, so to speak. And so that's the way they looked at it. So they had to be compensated for that, so they had to pay a dowry. And uh, it, was, it was an amount of money that they would pay to allow that boy to marry that girl. You remember in the Old Testament when Jacob married, wanted to marry Rachel. He went to Laban, her father, and said, I'll work for you for seven years if you could let me marry her. And he worked for him for seven years. And when it came time for the wedding, Laban tricked him and put Leah in there. And he ended up marrying Leah instead of uh, Rachel. And he found out about it. <laughs> They had a veil on until the uh, honeymoon, and he found out about it, and he was tricked. Well, he went back to Laban and said, I still want to marry Rachel, and he said, I, and he worked another seven years to get her. And that, was a, that, that Laban was a bad guy uh, in many ways. But anyway, look at Genesis 31, 14 and 15. This is after uh, Jacob and, and Rachel and Leah's now fixing to leave, and leave Laban's family and all, and they're going to start out on their own. It says, Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. So Laban, the dowry money and everything he got for letting his daughters marry Jacob, 
he spent it all or whatever, and they didn't have nothing when they got time to leave. So he was, he was a bad guy. But anyway, the ketubah is what we would call the engagement period. It was really uh, when you betrothed to somebody else, you're making an agreement that you're going to marry them even though you don't live together at this time and you haven't consummated the marriage in any way. Okay, after this t- time, though, when they made that contract, the boy, the groom, would go back to his house with his father and prepare a place and one day come back and get his bride. Now, let's look at returning for his bride. Now, he would go prepare a place, prepare a room, prepare a house of some type, somewhere he could have a wife where they can have a place to live. Now, the bride was not sure when he was going to come back and get her. She didn't know. He didn't say, I'll, pick you, I'll be back on September the 13th and pick you up or whatever. She had no idea when he'd come back and get her. Now, but she had to be ready. She, she would usually keep oil in her lamp. Uh, she would keep a veil on. She kept things in her, by her bedside and things like that because he could show up at any time and be ready to go. And this could be weeks and months and months and months and never know when he's coming back. But look at Matthew 25, verses 1 through 10. You'll get a, get a feel for this. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all, these virgins, all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and their foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. See, they weren't ready. And the wise answered and said, No, lest there should be not enough for us and you. Go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Others were not ready. They were not ready when he came, and the door was shut. The Bible says the same thing about when it come time to go into the ark. God had Noah and his family get into the ark, and it says God shut them in. When God shuts the door, it's over. When the door shuts, you can't say, All right, I'm here now. No, it's over. Now, so they would come. So, the groom would go back to his place after they signed the contract and prepare a place, and then eventually he's going to come back and get his bride, not sure when. Look at John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. This kind of show you that custom too. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, or many abodes, or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay. Now, here's a second, another part of three parts of the wedding. One is the engagement or the betrothal where you're, you're aligned and you have a contract or a covenant made that you're going to marry this person and the groom and bride are not, not together. He's gone away to prepare something. Then he comes back. Uh, it's called the, we call it the wedding. It's called the chupa in the Jewish culture. Look at verse 7 and 8 of, of Revelation 19. He said, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself 
ready. Now pay attention to that. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Underline that or pay attention to that. Now, when it comes time for the groom to go get his bride, the father told him, okay, you go get her. It's time for you to go get her. And he would come with the, with the friends of the bridegroom. He'd have some other, an entourage of people coming with him. And they would come and it'd be a great celebration, a lot of rejoicing and everything. When they get close to the house where the bride stayed, he would blow the shofar horn, the trumpet, so to speak, and uh, announcing his arrival. And, then the, and the bride knew her groom, had, her prince had come for her. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him, them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. It's talking about when he comes back for his bride. Now, there's a part that takes place. Now, we call this more like the wedding ceremony. Now, when he comes back to get her, it's called the presentation. Uh, the father would present his, you know, his son. He'd present the bride to his son. And uh, it was a very special time. It's more like a wedding ceremony here. But here's what it talks about in, in the Bible, talking about how the father's going to present us uh, to the son one day. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present, present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Here's another scripture in Ephesians. That he might present her, talking about the church, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. He wants his bride to be beautiful, spotless, and so forth. Now, here's a big question. The bride in a wedding ceremony there, she would always have a veil over her face. That's why, that's why poor old Jacob was fooled when he married Leah and didn't realize it until the honeymoon. But uh, Revelation 19.7, we just said, the wife, the bride, has made herself ready. Most Bible scholars say, when we have the wedding ceremony with the Lord, when we're joined together with Him, before we do that comes the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema judgment. The Bema judgment is when the groom, the, the, see a bride in those days would keep a hope chest and she would put things in there that she wanted to wear whenever she's presented to her husband. And, all kind, and he would look in her hope chest or look at the things that she would wear and say, I want this, that, don't put that, and all this kind of stuff. Most people think, most Bible scholars say, that's the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to stand before the Lord, before the actual ceremony. He's going to look at our lives. It's either going to be great things that will bring glory to Him when we're presented to Him, or things that we did with the wrong motives that's not acceptable that He will discard and burn. Wood, hay, and stubble. And that's part of this process of the Jewish wedding uh, when they're going to be presented to one another. Now, it says this in verse 8. Our clothing is going to be fine, beautiful white linen. It's the righteous acts of the saints. That's why he's talking about. Now, we're made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
We won't even be to heaven if it wasn't Jesus' blood that makes us righteous. But this, he's talking about here, are the righteous deeds or acts or the way we live our life that's going to be acceptable to him. He will cast away and throw away the things that were not done in the right manner, the right motive, the right love, or whatever it may be. And he will keep the things that will bring glory to him. So the things you do in your life is going to have an effect and as you come on. Let's look at some scriptures in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3, talking about this judgment seat. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in, his, in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We're not going to be at this judgment seat if we've been a good boy or a bad boy, if we're going to get to heaven or not. You won't be here unless you're in heaven. You're already righteous because his blood has made us righteous. Now he's looking at our works, not to get us there, but to what, what we did in our life that brought glory to him. Here's First, uh, first Corinthians says this, For no other foundation can any man, anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, the things that you do in your life as, after being a Christian, if anyone's work which he has built on, it, it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So these works that are going to be judged, it's like he's looking through our hope chest, the things we've got to offer him, and he's going to say, can't wear that, can't wear that. That's not going to be able to be presented to me. After they had the presentation, then the married couple would go off to the room or house and consummate the wedding. It's a honeymoon then. And then after the consummation of the wedding, there's going to be a celebration. All right, let's look at the third, and, uh, third stage of this. In the marriage supper... The celebration that takes place after the wedding has been consummated. Uh, usually that supper would go on for seven days. Depends on how wealthy uh, the, the, the groom's family was. Now I'm going to tell you something. Our Heavenly Father is very wealthy. He's got a lot. And so I don't know how long it will take place or how long it will go on. But most of the time in those days they would hold their weddings in the fall after the harvest. And that way people could be off, and it may be seven days that they would celebrate this marriage. Uh, maybe longer. But it would, it would last a few days. Now, this is called in the Bible the wedding feast. That's the celebration, the reception, we call it in our culture, where we have a reception after the wedding. Jesus gave a number of parables talking about a wedding feast. One of them, he said in Matthew 22, 1 through 4, a king throws a wedding feast for his son his son, the groom, and invites people to come to celebrate my son's wedding. They don't come, so he tells his servants to go out and invite the poor, the destitute, and the lame. There's some, there, it goes on, it says some guy tries to sneak in without the proper wedding garment on, and they throw him out. Not everybody's going to be at the marriage supper of the lamb. Not everybody's going to heaven. Y'all know that, don't you? Uh, in our culture, a lot of people get offended if they don't get invited to a wedding. Wow, I thought I was good friends. I don't know why they didn't, I didn't get an invitation. Well, a lot of people don't invite you to a wedding because it's costly. 
We, are, we said the average uh, wedding in America today is over $30,000. So they can't just invite everybody because that's a lot of people to feed and, and, and all that. A lot of people don't invite a lot of people to the wedding because they want a private, intimate wedding. They just want to invite some real close relatives or family or something like that. So don't get offended if you don't get invited to somebody's wedding. But if you don't make it to this wedding, it's a bad thing. Not only be at this wedding, to be married at this wedding. You have no excuses. You've been proposed to. You've been offered. Now, what are you going to do with it? Now, here's a question I don't... It's very difficult. When is all this taking place? You talk about this taking place in the future. There's a difference between being married to the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb takes place after being married to the Lamb. When do they occur? Good question. Everybody knows I've got a little bit different view of when the Lord's coming back uh, than most evangelicals, and that's okay. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope we all go quicker than I think we will. But... If you're an evangelical Christian, most of them believe in what's called the pre-tribulation rapture, and they believe this is the way it's going to wind up. Jesus is going to come back and rapture his church or his bride up out of the earth, and the dead in Christ will rise too, and, and then there will be seven years of tribulation on this earth. And that, that's why they tied in. See, that's seven years equals seven days. We're going to have seven years where we're going to have the marriage celebration up there and so forth. I don't know, but that's that's pretty prominent view right there some people believe and teach as i looked at this the marriage supper will be in heaven others believe the marriage supper is going to be during the millennial reign on this earth and there's reasons for why they believe that way i will say this i've always been told if you don't know what you're talking about just keep your mouth shut i told you i told you in, in homiletics class our our professor told us we don't care what you think don't come over and say, I think this Bible scripture means this. He said, don't tell people that. If you don't know, just don't talk about it. They don't care what you think. We don't care what you think. If you, don't, if you can't say, thus saith the Lord, and I, this is what the scriptures say, just keep your mouth shut. I don't know when this is going to take place, so I ain't going to say nothing about it. So I'll just tell you, I do not know. But I do know this. At this wedding, in our weddings, in our culture, the spotlight is on the bride. We all stand and rise, and, the, and she comes, and the doors open up, and everybody looks at the bride because the spotlight's on her. It'll be on the groom there. It won't be on the church. There will be angels, I believe, looking in on the outside, but it won't be on them. Moses, he'll be there. He stuck out his staff, and the Red Sea opened, but the one that spotlight's on, the one that hollowed out the Red Sea with his hands. Solomon, the wisest man, had a lot of issues. I suspect he'll be there, but one greater than Solomon is going to have the spotlight on him. David was a great king, conquered many foes for Israel, but the one who spoiled principalities and powers, that's the one that the spotlight's going to be on. Peter, great disciple, the head disciple, but the one that spotlights on in this wedding is the one that's the head of the church. Paul, author of most of the New Testament, 
But the one that spotlight's going to be on in this wedding is the author and the finisher of our faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, they're going to have to take a back seat. When this marriage takes place, here's what it says in, in Revelation. Let us be glad in verse 7. Let us rejoice and give honor to him, for his bride has made herself ready. The honor is going to the Lord. Let me start winding this down. All of y'all know I like Andy Griffith's show. Uh, I know the lines better than they do. Uh, one of the shows, though, was Mr. McBeavy. Opie, Andy's little boy, had gotten to where he was stretching the truth and making, make, saying things that were not really right but make-believe. And he told his daddy, I, I met a man out in the wood, out in the forest, daddy, named Mr. McBeavy. He said, really, what was he like? He said, he walks in the trees. He has a silver helmet. He's got 12 hands around his waist. And he jingles when he walks. And you make smoke come out of his ears and all these different things. His daddy laughed about it for a while. And after a while, Barney said, why do you, why do you let him tell that? He's almost acting like he believes it. He said, I know, I'm going to stop him. He got him together one night. He said, now, Opie, I understand we can play around sometimes, but there's something called lying. You're going to have to tell the truth. And I'm going to ask you one time, and you're going to get a whipping if you don't tell the truth. Mr. McBeebe's make-believe, ain't he, son? He said, no, he's real. And Barney said, did you spank him? He said, no. He said, you don't believe there's a man that walks in the trees and has 12 hands around and jingles and has smoke come out of his ears and all that, do you? He said, no, I don't believe that, but I believe Opie. What's fixing to take place in the future I don't understand it all, but I believe this, and I believe my Jesus, and he said we're going to an, a wedding one day. It's going to be an amazing event. I was thinking the other day some amazing things I've seen in my lifetime here, things that make me really say, man, I've never seen anything like that, some places. First time I went to Ponte Vedra and watched a pro golf tournament and looked at that golf course and saw the immaculate condition, no weeds, no nothing. It just looked like carpet. That just blew me away. I don't know when that was, but that blew me away. I'd never seen nothing like that. We went to China in 2007 on a mission trip, Beijing. One of, the, one of the days we got to go over and see the Great Wall of China. Now, that's amazing. That wall built across the mountaintops, I think it goes 1,500 miles. It'd be like a wall going out to Denver, Colorado, built on, in the rugged mountains. That was mind-blowing. One of the most beautiful drives I've ever been on in my life, uh, one was in Montana. It's called the Going to the Sun Road. It's in Glacier National Park. Another beautiful one was going from Lake Louise or Banff, that area, going up to Jasper, uh, Looked like you're driving through a calendar with the snow-covered peaks and the, the aqua lakes and, and things like that. It just didn't, didn't even look real. Went up to New England. Here, we went to see my daughter in New York. And we went up through upper state New York and went through Connecticut and Massachusetts and Vermont and places. 
in the fall. Now, that's beautiful. That's some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I could just list many things that's amazed me over the years. This is going to be an amazing day. I'm going to tell you one little story, and we're going to close. I don't know if you've heard it. I've heard it told so many different ways. I don't know which one's the accurate way, but I'm going to tell you one of the ways it's been told. Anybody here heard of Johnny Lingo and his eight-cow wife? <laughs> Johnny Lingo and his eight-cow wife. This takes place like in the South Pacific Islands. All these little islands scattered around. People lived on different islands. Johnny Lingo was a wealthy, good-looking young man. He was a great businessman, made great deals, had lots of money. This main island had a big, a big festival they'd have once a year, and the, and the rumor was out that Johnny Lingo was coming looking for a bride. And all the women would love to have been his wife. Now, when you found a bride in those days, if she was just so-so, you'd pay one or two cows as a dowry for her. If she was pretty nice, you might go three. If she was just gorgeous, four cows. And that would be like, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. The only one, the highest one ever anybody ever gotten was five cows, and that was a gorgeous woman. So Johnny Lingo's coming over here, and he's looking for a bride. There's this guy that had two daughters. One was a knockout, gorgeous. Her father thought she could bring four four cows. The other one was homely, kind of stoop-shouldered, uh, just a little ugly, plain, very backward, didn't get out, very shy. Somebody said she maybe could get the horns and the hoof. That's about all she was worth. <laughs> but anyway, she wasn't much. Johnny Lingo came to town. There was whispering going around. Who would he pick? And he went to this man and said, I want to marry your daughter. And his heart started beating right off the bat. He said, I'm fixing to get me four cows. My life's fixing to be changed. <laughs> he said, what uh, what will it take to get your daughter to be my wife? What, what do you require for a dowry? He thought, I'm going to break out and say, five. I need, I need five cows for her. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you eight cows. Everybody just shocked. And he said, I want eight cows I'm going to give you for Sarita. The ugly one. They said, what? This man was a good deal maker. He said, I'll give you eight cows for, for her. He said, yeah, where did we sign? He's getting rid of the ugly daughter and getting more than anybody in history had ever gotten for a wife. They got married and they went off to their island to live. The talk of the town for the next year was Johnny Lingo made the stupidest deal of his life. He spent eight cows for a homely, ugly wife. And he was the joke of the town. He came back the next year for the festival People were still laughing and talking. I said, Johnny, we can't believe as many good deals as you made that you made that deal. And he said, well, here's my wife, and that was the most beautiful woman anybody had ever seen. 
He said, that's Sarita. That's the same girl that you left here with? He said, yeah. He said, we don't understand. He said, well, what do you think a woman feels like when the women are talking and say, how much did they give for you? And they say, give one cow for me or two cows or something like that. What do you think a woman feels like if you said he paid eight cows for me? Changes her, her whole perception of herself. And I, I loved her just because I loved her, but I wanted her to know how valuable she was to me. So I gave eight cows for her so she'd always know she didn't have to take a back seat to anybody. She would be special. And I tell you what, when she realized how valuable she was in my eyes, it transformed her on the inside and out. And now you see the beautiful woman she is today, full of grace. And here's the moral of the story. God came here looking for a bride. And I'm going to tell you something. We don't look good before Jesus takes us. Sin, shame, what we're wearing is filthy rags. Any of our goodness is filthy rags. And our God owns the cattle of a thousand hills. But he didn't pay that way. He paid a price that you can't even count. He gave his son to purchase a bride for his son. And if we can just realize one thing, how valuable we are to God, it'll transform your life. It'll change the way you walk. It'll change the way you talk. It'll change the way you see yourself. Because when we look at ourselves, Ain't much to look at. But you see what God paid for us to join him in the marriage of the Lamb. It's something to behold. And that wedding is approaching fast. Approaching fast. They've all been proposed to, but everybody hadn't accepted the proposal. Would you stand with me? Before we close here today, I ask you this. The bridegroom's coming back. The world's falling apart. He's going to get us one day. Don't know when, but you better be ready. You better have your lamps trimmed. Because you'll hear a shout one day. And it'll be a trumpet. If you don't know him, all be in a state of prayer. Anybody that does not know Jesus, anybody here today that have not accepted his proposal and said, I've come for you, I, gave, I paid a high price to have you, don't turn me down, please. If you don't know Jesus today, these altars are open for you. 
That's what Jesus came to do. He came to to buy, set a price to satisfy the justice of God. And he paid a price to show you how much God loves you and values you. Doesn't matter what man says. Man looks on the outer appearance. God looks on the heart. If your heart right now is dark, sin and shame, but he'll transform your life if you let him. Let's pray. If you don't know Jesus, we invite you. If you don't know him, you've never given him your heart. You've rejected his proposal. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus. I would pray everybody in here is a Christian, but the odds are not that way. I pray, God, Spirit of God, knock on the door of someone's heart. Give them a chance to respond to the greatest gift of love ever given. We praise you today, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that one day we'll be in that number. But what a sad day when so many will be left behind. Father, in the name of Jesus, draw us to you. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. If you want to come pray, you can come after the service. We're going to have a a funeral service at 1230 here. If you'd like to stay, you certainly can stay. God bless you. Come back tonight for our Christmas Family Festival sing. We'll rejoice together.